Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Coming up on this week's show, the portable GameCube is real. The Sonic 2 movie trailer lands. We chat Star Control to Star Wars with Robert Leyland. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our good friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books we recommend you check out, and actually we featured this on the podcast before, The Secret History of Mac Gaming. The new expanded edition reprints are due next month, exploring the Mac's overlooked legacy as a gaming platform. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.co.uk. And with our friends at PCBWay, who offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they do 3D printing and injection moulding. And they're big supporters of the retro community. Get a quote for your project right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 318, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show. The podcast each and every Friday takes you on a journey into the world of classic video games. And of course, the main thing is we keep you up to date on all the big stories that have been happening in the world of retro gaming and tech over the last week. And we're joined by a veteran of the industry on each week's show. Now, we'll talk more about our uh, incredible guest that's coming up on this week's show in just a minute. It was quite nice, though. And I know we say this a lot, but it does kind of blow my mind just how much bigger retro seems to be getting like every few months i mean there's these stories coming out and it's getting more and more coverage you've seen it on you know television now and actually it was quite nice to i get tagged by quite a lot of people um on twitter and facebook following on from the episode we did a couple of weeks ago all about the um comeback of retro gaming magazines you know we talked about sega powered and amiga addict and then actually a week later the guardian did an entire feature about it last week yeah, it was a really nice feature, actually, like um, written by Keith Stewart. And I love Keith's stuff. It's always uh, really well thought out and intelligent. And he was talking about the kind of the, the way that like magazines are, are physical and, you know, people have missed that physicality and that kind of escape that you get with magazines. And, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia there. And uh, he was mm. kind of talking about the new magazines that were hitting. And of course, um he mentioned Amiga Addict, which I'm part of, um, so I'm going to be biased in that way. But uh, there's some awesome ones as well out there. So there's like a Retro Gamer as well. There's Zap. There's uh, loads on the shelves, actually, in W8 Smith and stuff. I went in there the other day and I was like, oh, God, which one do I pick to actually read? You know, I'm excited about that because we did mention in the interview that we did that Amiga Addict is now going to be in WH Smith, which, you know, for people outside the UK... WH Smith is like the main high street news agent here. And it's where I used to buy all my gaming mags from when I was a kid and a teenager. So seeing an Amiga magazine back in there, I imagine, you know, next to stuff like Retro Gamer on the shelf is going to be pretty amazing. It's going to make me feel like I'm like, you know, 13 again, I think, seeing that. To me, it feels different than something digital if you can actually buy it from a shop and pick it up and, you know, feel it and go to the reception and be like... Oh, could I get this Mac, please? You know, it's like uh, brings back a lot of nostalgia and kind of uh, warm feelings for us retro gaming fans. You know what we need next? 
Retro our audio cassettes on the shelves of Deloitte. <laughs> audio oh, cassettes, wow. that's going to be tough. <laughs> what about that? So yeah, congrats to the Amiga Addict gang, which I know you're part of, Ravi. going to be amazing to see an Amiga mag back on the high street again. So uh, we'll link up that article in The Guardian if you want to check that um, check that out. The return of retro gaming video game magazines, uh, following on from that podcast that we did a couple of weeks ago. But this week, we have got an amazing guest. Now, uh, you guys did this one, Robert Leyland, and we were trying to like kind of summarise what you guys talked about in this interview. And you covered quite a lot in an hour, I think it's fair to say, I, with Robert. I'll start with the first half, because me and me and joe did this one and god robert has done so much stuff like it's another guest where we've had to have a a, a second interview or a second part to follow this on because even in that interview he revealed what else he did so uh for a start he was talking about epics and when it was uh automated simulations which was a kind of early company before epics and then he was talking about you know zx spectrum development apple II. Um, C64 stuff, um, a series Star Control. We covered that in Star Control 2. But then he worked for a graphics company that were also creating the Koala Pad, which was, um, you know, one of the first kind of graphics tablets that were available. And a lot of people owe their career to that. And yeah, and then he went on to kind of development with the consoles, didn't he, Joe? Yeah, you know, like you say, we get a lot of our information, you know, what's just on the website and stuff uh, on the internet. And obviously, he there was a big like ten year gap, and that's when he kind of did the koala pad and stuff. So it was really cool that he filled in the gaps. Um, but then, like you say, we then went into the console stuff, and we got um, a really kind of in depth kind of perspective of development on the Sega Saturn, which we've was not really heard cool, about that before. Which we've not we heard really about. You know, about and you hear Saturn. you hear a lot of stories about the Saturn and stuff, but you know, he had some really positive things to say about it, you know, because obviously a lot of people tend to hate on the Saturn and stuff and the development on it and how difficult it was with the two processors and stuff. But, you know, he, he was actually quite a bit bit of a fan of it. You know, he said it was actually really powerful for what it did and stuff like that. And then we got some really cool inside stories about a lot of the licensed games he worked on, like Congo and then Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, which was really cool, and how that kind of came about, you know, in the late 90s, like the revival of Star Wars and how it was going to be huge. Um, and then we also spoke about Simpsons Wrestling as well, and, you know, kind of like, nice. <laughs> you know, the movie studios and stuff, like getting involved and what they could and couldn't do. So it was really cool to get that perspective. But like you say, a really big career from the early 80s all the way up, like, you like, yeah. he's still going. We ended around 2000, 2001. You know, we are the retro hour, as I always say. And he was like, I've got, you know, the original Xbox to talk about and the Wii. And <laughs> he did all the Skylanders games, you know, with Spyro and stuff. So we definitely got to get him back on again and, in the And future. he was part of a, a subsidiary, uh, which was called uh, Toys for Bob as well. So he started working with them. And they were part of Crystal Dynamics as well, who did like Pandemonium and stuff. And there was like Saturn development on that and Activision as well. But then at the very end of it, he just goes, oh, yeah, but did the Game Genie as well. Yeah, like, what? <laughs> yeah, he he helped with uh, a lot of the programming on the uh, the game genie, didn't he? So um, yeah, we we didn't we only managed to touch on that for like literally two minutes because it was so vast. So yeah, really, really awesome score there, Abby. I love the fact that when we're getting a massive guest like that who mentions something as a little throwaway line that could probably be an entire episode. Yeah, hundred percent. Oh, yeah, 100%, yeah. <laughs> and it's going to be nice to get some Saturn insider knowledge mm. as well because i think you know so we've all got satins haven't we i know you're a big fan joe I've, I've had a satin for years i remember trying to mod chip ravi's when he first got his a few years ago and it is i think yeah i know you're a big fan of it but generally in terms of retro gaming fans i, I do feel it's often quite a bit underrated yeah massively and i don't want to spoil the interview um but you know he, he was talking about like how 
the Saturn could do, in his opinion, it could do certain things much better than the PlayStation, but then the PlayStation would just blow it out of the water and other things, you know, in terms of polygons and, you know, drawing and rendering polygons and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it was nice to hear, like I say, that, that positivity around it. You know, and, it, and the inside story of the development system as well, because mm. we always hear how big the PlayStation development yeah. system was when you hear about yeah, the Saturn. He, he, he did like, talk whoa. about how when they sent them the, the Sega Saturn development machine, which I've never even heard about before. So it was really cool. It was it was very unexpected, which to get all those that kind of insider stuff. So definitely one to, to not miss. It's a jam-packed interview, isn't it, this one? And being our resident, you know, hardcore Sega fan, Joe, we had to get you on this interview. Oh, so God, Robert yeah. Leyland, he's coming up on the show in around 25 minutes from now. Now, being our resident Sega fan, you think you'd have seen the Sonic movie when that came out last summer? <laughs> Are you dropping Land me in, in it, Dan? There. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, story, story time. We Obviously, I love Sonic, and we spoke about Sonic, you know, Sonic 2 in the past coming out, and obviously Sonic 1 a couple of summers ago. Um, but Dan kind of dropped me in it when the first Sonic 2 trailer came out and was like, you loved the first Sonic, didn't you, Joe? And I was like, mm-hmm, I've not seen it yet. God, <laughs> even I sat I down and watched like 20 minutes of it until I gave up. <laughs> I know, I need to watch it. And I, I have heard a lot of good things about it. I know, Ravi, you're not convinced. Um, I have heard good things about it. So I do need to sit down and watch it, especially with it being on the on the UK Netflix now. So I, and I remember me, me and you were going to go to the cinema and see it together. I don't know what happened. Maybe COVID, another lockdown or something happened. I can't remember. I remember we had plans to, though. Yeah, we had plans to. I think because of COVID, didn't it end up being like the biggest yeah. biggest uh, film of 2020 or something? Yeah, but, um, yeah, I think you might right. Yeah, the Sonic 2 trailer is here. And I love the look of it. But my first, I mean, I know, Ravi, I know you've straight away to us said you're not convinced again. But my first kind of like opinion of it is it just looks like Sonic 3, the game. Because obviously you've got Knuckles in there and there's a reveal in it of like the big ginormous Robotnik-like robot, which mm. looks, you know, obviously there is a giant Robotnik robot at the end of Sonic 2, but I think it looks more like the one at the end of Sonic 3 to me. And there's a whole snowboarding-like scene, you know, in the ice as well, which happens in Sonic 3. There's so Tails in there as well, isn't there? Which is a, yeah, a Tails new addition is, this time. Yeah, yeah. So he was in the after credit scene. Of the first film, you see, I know these things. You know, and he I, looks. You know. He looks very cute as well. Tails does compared yeah. to Sonic, who's a bit of a kind of like little brat. Um, yeah, Tails is like the little kind of cute side of it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But I think it looks really cool, and I think you know a lot of the enemies in the you know in the film and the trailer and stuff like that look just like the enemies from the games. You know, they've really captured the essence of Sonic Two and and Sonic Three, and they've got the you know the little you know the little plane that tails drives as well so it looks like the last couple of levels of sonic 2 which i think is really awesome and obviously like i say you've got knuckles in there so it seems like a bit of a sonic 2 and sonic 3 based on but what i absolutely love which i did post on our socials yesterday is the poster that they've done for it so you got to talk about this i mean this is if you're a fan of the original sonic 2 game on the mega drive they have pretty much recreated the poster haven't they from the game box art yeah so they've got pretty much they've got robotnik in the background holding the big two, and it's the exact same Jim two. Jim Carrey. Um, yeah, and it's the Jim Carrey. It's the exact same number two with the checkered kind of back to it as uh, the original box art. The only thing where I think they missed the trick is Sonic and Tails on the front cover, like, are kind of, like, ready to fight. Like, they've got, like, their fists clinched, like, ready to go. Whereas in the original, you know, Genesis Mega Drive box art, they're, like, stood with their arms folded. Like, you know, that I, kind of I tubular. Thought, like, I would have thought they, they would have gone more literal, like maybe the aquatic run in there or like 
Sonic in Vegas casino zone, you know? Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe they do when the film comes out. Like I say, it looks as though they've got the last kind of two levels of Sonic 2 uh, with the big... Um, I can't remember the name of it, like the Death oh, Egg. The, the, the plane in there. there as well. Yeah, they've yeah. got that level with the plane and then they seem to have got the ice level from Sonic 3. So maybe there will be more of that, you know, when the film actually comes out and a little bit more kind of based on the game, which would be really cool. But I'm going to make it my... I'm gonna I'm gonna make it my mission to watch the first one now, <laughs> so I can't, can't, can't. I feel like we're gonna get so many people like hating on me now. Like, I, I feel not betrayed, even Joe. It. I know, <laughs> including me. I know, I'm hating on you, Joe. I've seen more Sonic than you. Honestly, I'll sit down and watch it with my daughter. I swear to God, I will. <laughs> well, this is coming out on um, Sonic Two premiere on April the eighth in mm-hmm. cinemas so I'm going to drag it to cinema to see this one but you have to watch the first of one of course but, yeah I'm just saying uh, we'll come out to cinema and go yeah, I didn't watch the first one yeah but yeah, we, we, <laughs> I didn't get it uh, yeah who's Tails who's Sonic man but no I'll watch the first one I'm going to watch it tonight or tomorrow night and then me and you will go to the cinema in a couple of weeks and we'll give our opinion on it in the first week yeah. of April and again, I mean, like the first one, and you wouldn't know having not seen it, Jeff, uh, but Jim Carrey just steals every scene that he's in in the trailer. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he's just incredible in the first one. You've got Idris Elba, who uh, plays Knuckles in it as well. So, you know, another all-star lineup as well. I think this is going to be a, a big one this summer for the kids and uh, and for us as well. So uh, if you're going to check out the trailer, I'll link it up in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now let's talk about the Raspberry Pi, because we don't mention that much on this show, do we? Never. Only like every week, because it's yeah, so cool. You can do everything with the Raspberry Pi. Well, someone now has done something that I think is actually a really logical thing to do with the Raspberry Pi. And I'm quite surprised no one has done this before. Actually put the smallest Raspberry Pi, the Pico, onto a cartridge. Yeah, so like the Pico's a microcontroller. And um, yeah. it's a, mu- a lot like the kind of Arduino, but uh, really like shrunk down and in a small size so it's it's quite ideal to fit on a cartridge and this is um a 16k cartridge which is fitting on the commodore 64 and you know it's it's quite a smart idea actually to 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 be able to use this microcontroller because it's you know got the usb port micro usb port in there as well and um i was just thinking like looking at this he's he's basically mounted it onto a c64 uh cartridge he's work through the power circuits because there was a a bit of a difference in voltage in there Mm. but um you know it enables you to kind of flash it and uh uh, do loads of different things with it i think this would be a good concept to maybe work on a like game boy as well or something that was as low powered or or required as as a small amount of uh you know ram in there because i mean the pico it, it is very small it's about the size of you know, like an old CPU, like, you know, the Motorola 68K in the Amiga 500 is about the same size Yeah, as a Pico, isn't it? You know, it's a very small little device. So the fact that he can just mount it on another motherboard and, you know, put that into, into a cartridge enclosure as well, it does open up a lot of possibilities as well. I mean, it, it's only a small demo at the moment. It's a guy called um, Kevin Vance from uh, Pennsylvania, and he's got the, uh, the Commodore 64 booting up and loading some software from the Pico that's mounted on this custom PCB. But I'm thinking, you know, they could probably develop something like this into like a, an all-in-one kind of EverDrive. Yeah, or so, so you know, at the moment, of- he can just uh, produce an image viewer in there that displays the Raspberry Pi logo. Um, yeah. But um, I was thinking like, yeah, maybe. Or, or he was mentioning using it as a, as a co-processor. 
So, you know, like, yeah. you know, they used to have in the Mega Drive cartridges, those extra chips that would, uh, what's it called, Joe? You know, the, the, the speed up chip that they would have for like um, virtual racing and stuff. Oh. The Super FX chip. That was... Super FX, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was Nintendo, wasn't it? That was Sorry. Nintendo, yeah. Super Nintendo. Yeah. Uh, so kind of using it as a co-processor processor in a way and using its power maybe with an existing game or or kind of yeah making a cheap everdrive alternative like you say yeah because i'm looking at the pico it's a small little device and it's only got two megabytes of ram on board but i do believe i mean i'm looking at images of it now i've not actually seen one of these in person before but it looks like there are versions of it with a, a micro sd card slot on there you know, oh underneath. nice maybe they all have actually you know so it's obviously you've got to load the the, the operating system. So maybe it could be, cause I'm just thinking, because I know EverDrives with kind of, you know, custom firmware and stuff on there and custom hardware, they're generally quite pricey. I think, you know, most EverDrives are about 100, 120 quid, aren't they? So I'm thinking maybe something like this, you know, if it's a Raspberry Pi Pico, you know, you can, I know the price of everything's going up and Raspberry Pis are, are quite hard to get hold of at the moment. Um, but, you know, from what I remember, they're about, what, 20 pounds, I think. They're quite, yeah, quite and cheap. I think um, that Pico 8 was also, ported on to oh, three, three pounds sixty sorry the raspberry pi pico oh, wow. three pounds sixty so yeah you could get a very cheap everdrive but but also there's that pico 8 engine i think that was yeah. uh, put onto there so maybe it might be a way of kind of creating a bridge to that world and that games library on one of your older consoles which uh is, is quite interesting i like the potential of this you know it's just been developed but uh kind of seeing this evolution of the game cart is a uh, quite nice thing you know what's funny though, and I actually saw this today. Someone posted a picture. Um, so I'm in a load of retro computing groups on Facebook, and a guy posted a picture of uh, an old machine, a Commodore CDTV, and I think he had three separate Raspberry Pis mounted at various points on the motherboard, plugged into devices to do various things on there. It's like, and someone put the headline on top of it: "Who ate all the pies?" <laughs> it's literally they're just like they can do anything there. It's that kind of infamous question, like you know, you're using another computer to help something, and especially with like yeah. the Amiga and stuff. When does it? When does it not become the original design? But I think this one kind of really sticks in there because it's just a cartridge. You know, and yeah, and uh, yeah, it's still using the kind of original processor and everything. That is a fine line, isn't it? Yeah. Because when you replace too much of it, you get to the stage where literally all you use it is like the keyboard. And it's mouse. like Frankenstein's monster and built up of all these different kind of machines. You know, you've got about four pies in there, and yeah, it's like hmm. <laughs> I think for me though, cause it's kind of a halfway point between emulation and real hardware isn't it you know if it feels like real hardware and that thing's kind of hidden away inside doing its own thing but you're still using the original machine yeah. that feels authentic to me i think yeah it's, so. it's it's a big debate in the in the kind of retro yeah. world at the moment definitely which will never end i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah if you want to keep an eye on this project i'll put that in our show notes as well now this weekend um you know, it's fair to say we've had a a busy couple of weeks, lads, I think. Because obviously I know we've all got holiday coming up. You're off to America starting next month, Ravi, for a bit. And you've, you've got loads planned there. You're off to VCF. Uh, yeah, yeah, VCF East, the big vintage computer festival East. And uh, going to be meeting a lot of people there, getting some interviews and stuff. And I'm actually going to have to do some of the news shows from uh, America. So that's going to be interesting. Random cafes. Uh, you'll hear people ordering um, bagels <laughs> in the background. <laughs> It'll be great. And if not, we'll just put that sound effect on in the background. Yeah. <laughs> just pretend. I miss my flight. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, you're going away for for a week in Wales, Joe, as well. So we've got lots that we need to obviously get done before all that. And I think, you know, um, by the time the show comes out, we'll have done in about a week, about, what, five interviews we've got lined up, which bearing in mind each interview probably takes about an hour and a half to two hours to do, about 
probably two or three hours to prep, a couple of hours to organise it all. You know, we, we've been working our socks off recently on this show. And coming up this weekend is uh, something that we always look forward to. And that, of course, is doing our patrons hangout. Now, this is something that we do um, once a month. We invite all our patrons to come on. It's a bit like a big Zoom call, isn't it? Everyone just hangs out. My missus actually said to me, because she's always in, you know, the kitchen or the living room when I'm doing it. She goes, what do you guys talk about on there for like two or three hours? Well, we, well, well, Dan's well, wife. Okay. We talk about everything. I mean... We, we don't talk just, about Dan's wife. We talk about Dan's we wife. We do, we do sometimes. Yeah. And how she thinks we're all nerds. No, we, we tend to talk about, it It becomes a bit of a user's group. You know, we talk about what we've picked up this last couple of months, you know, this last couple of weeks, like what retro buys we've got, which is always really fun, show off, you know, our collections and stuff. But we always end up talking about something like old retro mobile phones or, you know, retro films, like videotapes and Mini stuff displays. like that. Mini we displays. even get into like networking and stuff. Like it can get really yeah. geeky at some point. Yeah, and yeah, it can yeah. Like and come out of it and then, oh, it's just, it's it's a really nice kind I, of conversation. I think, um, I think it's really funny whenever somebody kind of like shows up, like shows up with like a random motherboard they found in a skip. Yeah. And they're like, who can tell us what this is? And everybody sits there trying to figure it out what it is for them and stuff like that. So it is really really fun and it was a lifesaver during lockdown to kind of like get on with your mates and stuff because that's what it feels like it feels like chatting with your mates and stuff like that and we've been doing it a while now so you know we've all become friends digitally which is really really cool so if you want to get involved you have to jump on our patreon yeah, we're going to be doing one this coming Sunday. And what I love about it as well is you can get advice. I mean, I, this is how like kind of niche we go on there. I was talking about a device I bought called um, a Real Magic Card, mm. which is uh, an MPEG decoder that let you play video CDs and a few games that were made for it that was released back in 1995. I want to do a YouTube video on it. And I couldn't get it working with my sound card. And one of the guys on the, uh, on the chat, he goes, it's got a built-in sound card, that. And I was like... I didn't even realise that, but someone on there knew what this card was mm. and how it works. So that saved me a lot of time um, when I'm prepping for this video. So, I mean, yeah, we just have so much fun doing it. And uh, if you've ever listened to the show and you think, uh, you know, I, I should join those guys on Patreon, now will be a good time to do it because this weekend you're going to get invited to the Hangout on Sunday night, you know, chill with us for a couple of hours, had a bit of a geek out with us. And also you're going to get um, a new episode of our second podcast that we do for our gold tiers and above every single month, the Retro Hour After Hours we're recording a new episode of that this weekend. So you're going to get both things this weekend if you join us on Patreon. And I think we're going to be doing a special about um, retro handheld systems, aren't we? Yeah. yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. We're going to be talking about kind of like our memories and what we think of the retro, you know, of handhelds and stuff like that. And then, as always, when we talk about these things, we're going to do our top five handheld games. Because there's not enough handheld consoles for us to be like, what's your top five? Because then... We kind of cover them all in one go, <laughs> yeah. don't we? Um, but yeah, really looking forward to that one. And and they kind of span all the different periods as well. Mm. So, you know, you've got like the, the Game Boy, the Game Gear, you've got the Atari Lynx. You, oh, just don't really... spoil it. Don't spoil it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is going to be a fun one, actually. And I think I'm going to have to get a few of those systems out this week and uh, have a little play before we uh, record that this weekend. So if you've ever wanted to back us on Patreon, now will be a very good time to do it. And of course, um, you're going to keep the show coming out every single Friday. We'd really appreciate your support you know like i said we've been working our socks off so if you'd like to join us on there uh, all the details to back us on patreon you'll find it at the retrohour.com now this is something that i remember seeing actually um and it's been floating around the internet for many years a mock-up that was made back in 2005 of a supposed portable gamecube have you guys seen this image before? This is something that's been floating around the internet for I've a long time. I've not seen it. And uh, interestingly on it, it says Nintendo GameCube Advanced, <laughs> yeah. which is a, a pretty interesting mashup of names. I've seen it many, many times. 
you know, like you say, it's, it's one of those markups that have been floating around for years, like the handheld original Xbox and the handheld Xbox 360. But yeah, there's a bit of a myth around it, like you say, yeah. for the best part of like 15, 16 years now. But it's no longer a myth. It, it's, it's, it's come true. Our dreams have yeah. been made. Well, this is a YouTuber. He's called Ed Ginger of Oz, and he does a lot of these kind of console mods. He also made a handheld um, PlayStation 2 a while back as well. And he was curious about this image. He remembers seeing it for a long time, and he actually shows a YouTube video that's from like 2006, 2007, um, which is kind of showing, you know, upcoming new consoles. It's like a fake video with like, you know, mock-ups of the Xbox 720 in there and things like that. Um, and he said he was always quite curious about this, and now he's older and he's got the skills to make it, he thought, why don't I make this a reality? And actually, he tracked down the original guy who made this mock-up. He's actually found him, a guy called Demond on Instagram. And he sent him a little message and said, look, you know, what was the deal with this? Did you make it? He he found him on like an archived web forum from 2005. And this guy admitted it was a mock-up that he made while he was in college. Mm. And he posted it on the internet to see if people would think it was legit. And that was it, really. It was a bit of a troll kind of thing. But this guy, what he's done, he's... He's always wanted one of these, and he's made it a reality, not using a GameCube, though. This is actually a Wii motherboard in a small little case with a mounted little LCD screen on there as well. So it's a little bit, imagine um, the larger DS. Is that the DS Excel, was it called? You know, the larger version of the Nintendo DS. It's kind of like one of those, but but it's not as wide. So imagine that kind of split in half, and it's got a 4.3 screen. And he's um, put the innards of the... GameCube controller mounted into the top of it. The screen's on a hinge. And then there is what looks like an optical drive on the front. Now, in the original mock-up, because you know how small the um, the Nintendo GameCube discs are, they're like mini CDs, aren't yeah. they? So in the original mock-up, there was one of those coming out the front that you know indicated there was a drive inside it. But actually, the drive itself is bigger than this console is made, so you couldn't fit that in there. So that is just a dummy thing. Actually, it's loading off SD cards inside the machine. Oh, okay. Um, but really what he's got is he's got a modded Nintendo Wii that he shrunk down to be, you know, into a little case with a couple of small batteries in there as well, a little LCD screen and put it all in a nice 3D printed case. And the whole thing is, you know, not much bigger than like, you know, half of a phone or something. It's, it's very it's small. It's really well done. It's pretty pretty ideal yeah. for people with um, 3D printers creating these kind of little portable devices because they just fit you know, they're the right size for 3D printing, but also he's done um, what a lot of kind of modders have done previously where they've cut up the Wii. So um, mm. we covered a few devices like a portable Wii and stuff where they'd actually trimmed down the motherboard of the Wii and then they've got like the little power modules and all of the separate stuff has actually been designed over time. So you can get the PCBs and uh, there's a whole active kind of modding community around cutting up and reordering the Wii, and that's probably really helped him. So he can, you know, mock this up, design it, 3D print the case, then get all these PCBs and put it together pretty simply. And my God, it looks like a well-done job. Like, uh, yeah, he's really, really done this impressively. I think he's had to cut some stuff down, like uh, even the heat sink he had to cut down with a Dremel and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I would just, I'm just watching it now, and it's like... he. he- uses a lot of the innards of the game controller but did he with the sticks he couldn't get the screen to close so did he have to do some custom mm. analog sticks there or did he just cut them down do you know 
Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I'll put the whole video in. It's about 25 minutes and people want to watch it, but it looks like kind of inverted, isn't it? When yeah. You look at it. it actually looks a bit like a like off the DS, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah stick on that, actually. Maybe he's doing Yeah, that, I was going to say, it. they've got like the flat kind of like nice, you know, yeah, it reminded me of the PSP, but yeah, the DS is probably a better example. So so just to get my head around it, so it's the disk drive on it is just a fake disk drive. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so don't, don't push the disk all the way in because you probably won't be able to get that. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair enough, though. You know, it is what it is, you know, with the SD card and stuff like that. But, you know, if this was a commercial product, that would just, I mean, it blows my mind anyway. It's, it's it was... pretty close to one as well. You know, like mm. um, the battery in there as well was pretty good. You know, it would would last it's for quite a while. It's not that it, it lasts an hour. Oh, that's, that's good for one of these projects. Uh, be, better than the Game Gear, then. Amiga laptop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it lasts like ten minutes. <laughs> it's kind of got that. Yeah, if you if you played handhelds, you know, back in the day, it's got that retro handheld battery life on it, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, you know, we do cover a lot of these kind of fan modifications, but I think. This one, to me, is especially cool because it's something that this guy always dreamed of owning and now he's made it a reality. Yeah, you know, I love at the end he puts up with his wee boy colour, which I think we covered on the show a while yeah. back as well, where he had the wee into the uh, the Game Boy. So, yeah, really, really cool fan project. And like just, you say, Ravi, it's these 3D printers which just making things like so possible these days. That's the thing, just looking at it at the moment, it looks like he's actually, um, you're talking about the like thumbstick and the D-pad. He's actually mm. printed the thumbstick and the D-pad. Oh, has he? Oh, um, brilliant. To oh, right. fit in that lower profile. But um, mm. the fact that you can do it that well. And also, I remember, you know, the early days of 3D printing where you had all those lines on it and it was like, it, it would always look like hatched or... You'd kind of have that kind of a uh, texture on it. This this just looks really smooth and uh, mm. well done. You know, um, it's amazing how far these things have come. Really, I do love seeing fan projects like this. The only thing is that make me very jealous that I've got nowhere near the skills to do anything. Oh like god, that. yeah, I'm exactly the same. I wouldn't know where to start with something like this. We just talk about it. <laughs> yeah, we do. that's all we can do. But it's nice to get the word out there as well. So uh, definitely a video that's worth a watch. Um, yeah, very very cool. Now, if you were to um, find me in an arcade when I was like, you know, eight, nine years old, you probably would have found me near this. Oh, yeah. What a game. And we still play this now, you know, whenever we have like multiplayer sessions at your house, we mm-hmm. get a bit of MAME on or mm-hmm. we fire up the Xbox. Always a bit of Turtles. Oh, yeah. And I love the fact that, you know, on the arcade, you can actually get four people on it as well. So yeah. you can always get all your mates involved in that brilliant game. And something that I think I must have bought or downloaded on, you know, pretty much every system that can run it. But now there is a celebration of the classic Konami Turtles games that's coming out. And in fact, they're actually bundling a bunch of these games together. I think it's pretty much all of them, isn't it? Th- Into a massive collection. I think it is all of them. So this is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles a Kawabunga collection coming from Konami. Um, it just says 2022 at the moment, so probably later this mm. year. But it is 13 radical classics, which are going to be coming to PS5, PS4, Steam, Switch, Xbox Series X and S, and Xbox One. So Everything. Everything. And uh, like you say, pretty much the, uh, the entire collection. So we've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the arcade game. Turtles in Time, the arcade game. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for the NES. It shows, shows only now. Tur- I'm just going to call them Turtles. Turtles 2, the arcade game. Turtles 3, the Manhattan Project for the NES. Turtles Tournament Fighters for the NES. <laughs> Turtles 4, Turtles in Time for Super Nintendo. Uh, Tournament Fighters Super Nintendo. The Hyperstone Heist for Sega Mega Drive. Tournament Fighters for Sega Mega Drive. Fall of the Foot Clan for Game Boy. Back from the Sewers for the Game Boy. And Radical Rescue for the Game Boy. So pretty much... 
every game that came out for the 8-bit and 16-bit consoles and arcades even to like you're getting the different versions as well so it's like yeah you know um tournament fighters came out on the nes the snes and the mega drive and you get like all three versions of it on there uh which is just crazy because all three versions had their own characters and bosses and stuff like that but yeah really interesting that it's coming out this year because obviously there is another turtles game coming out this year as well shredder's revenge we talked about which we have spoke about coming from uh mu who did streets of rage 4 which is like a its own kind of 16-bit version isn't it like a sequel to like you know the arcade game and turtles in time and stuff like that so interesting that konami are doing their own release of it which they've done quite a lot of over the years like the castlevania one and the contra one so it makes sense because it's such a they were such big games and such a big ip and there's so many of them but interesting that they're both coming out this year but you know maybe it will do well like kind of off the hype of both of them but i'll definitely be buying it because of like you say love those games and you know, you know I, I i wasn't kind of aware of those games so something like that. this is really good you know dan was mm. in the arcades i was in the sewers looking for the turtles um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. skateboarding yeah. going around those tunnels <laughs> Eating pizza. i must admit there is more of them than, than i thought there was yeah I mean, i've really only played the, the arcade and turtles in time i played that quite a lot but the rest of them i, I don't think i played many of the others on that list and, and yeah, i mean i've played quite a few of them and i'm aware of pretty much all of them i don't think i could have told you the the names of all the game boy ones Ones, but it, it makes it very accessible because of a lot of the turtle games if you want to buy the original you know like hyperstone heist and uh tournament fighters and turtles in time these are really expensive games now for like the super nintendo and, the and it's Drive. like spanning four systems as well yeah yeah much, yeah, you, yeah yeah pretty much you've got arcade you've got arcade game boy nintendo snes and mega drive so five oh, five yeah five consoles there so 13 games um there so I'm not too sure how much it's going to be or anything like that, but it's at thirty nine ninety nine dollars. Okay, that's so, a steal um, that on is. physical and digital. It says it doesn't. Maybe that's a physical version thirty nine. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. But yeah, I definitely want to get my hands on that. So hell of a lot of games there for forty dollars. Yeah. And I love the fact they bundle it into, I mean, they're calling it the Cowabunga Collection, yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, obviously makes sense. Um, I love the fact that they've done that and they haven't just, you know, because they could have so easily just put them out individually for mm. like nine ninety nine each, couldn't they? Oh, like yeah. Xbox Live or, or Switch or whatever, but it's nice having them all together. And they've actually done, I mean, there's a, there's a trailer as well um, they've put up that actually shows you, you know, the gameplay, which obviously modern systems can emulate it flawlessly yeah but they've actually gone to some nice touches like putting you know the on the arcade games the kind of arcade artwork around the edges of the screen you know so four by three rather than stretch stretching them they've actually padded it out with that yeah and the stuff like which i massively appreciate you know now that my gameplay skills are now these classic titles are not quite what they once were <laughs> i appreciate having stuff like a rewind function which they've included rewind well, functions and so. infinite continues are a must-haves games for games. us old boys old boys now <laughs> who aren't yeah, very good exactly. at games anymore <laughs> <laughs> so yeah very cool to see turtles back and like you said you know with the other game coming out as well um it, it does feel like you know it's going to be the year it feels like 1989 again oh, no, turtle fever again year of the turtle it is, isn't it? it's back. <laughs> <laughs> so uh definitely worth a look in now before we get into our chat this week special guest robert leyland coming up on the show in just a moment let's take a quick pause to give a big thank you to this week's sponsor and it is our very good friends at expressvpn now it feels like a day doesn't go by when we don't read you know some story about how companies are invading our privacy and you know a lot of these big companies actually make most of their money by taking and selling our personal data you know they get our web history you see all those cookie pop-ups they look at what videos you're searching for then they sell that data 
to the highest bidder. So, I mean, what's he all saying that, you know, if you're not paying for a product, you are the product. Yeah. That's generally how it works, isn't it, with these big companies? Which is why there is a really good way to protect your identity from these big companies by using ExpressVPN every time you go online. Yeah, as you know, when you're shopping on Google or something, uh, whatever you've shopped for, something will pop up straight away, uh, kind of usually the thing that you've actually shopped for already. But, um, you know, they are tracking you. And uh, this is a really good way of protecting yourself and making yourself anonymous online. Um, it essentially camouflages your IP address. And, you know, I'm going on holiday. I'm going to be using all sorts of Wi-Fi networks and stuff. Yeah. And uh, a VPN is really good. And ExpressVPN is the best, basically, that I've used. A really fast, really good service. And uh, even actually, amazingly, booking hotels and stuff. If I use a VPN in another country, uh, you can get a bit of a better rate, which uh, I, <laughs> yeah, I just you, you booked out. a hotel in New York. What what happened there? It was going to be £200 if you booked it in Britain. Yeah, and then you I, I, just, VPN I, to be in America. I change it to America, and then suddenly all the prices change, and I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. So, and, and that works with a lot of things as well. So, uh, yeah, I just think Express is great, and uh, it, it, it's great to kind of hide your public address and uh, not get that much data out there. And that's the thing, you know, we read so much about, you know, hackers and things. It's on everyone's mind, you know, with what's going on in the world right now. So if you don't want to be spied on, and the thing about ExpressVPN is it's dead easy to use as well, isn't it? I know you've got it on your phone. Oh, yeah. You just, it's literally one button. One button, or you can set it to actually launch on your computer when you're launching up. So even if I'm in like a cafe and I want to, you know, go on the Wi-Fi straight away, Express can auto-launch and then uh, I can connect, which is really awesome. So if you're like us and you think that your internet data belongs to you, not these big companies, then ExpressVPN is the answer. And we want you to protect your data with the number one rated VPN provider today and use our exclusive link and we'll get you three months extra free on a one-year package. So three months completely free. Head to this website, expressvpn.com slash retro. That's our exclusive link. If you use that, they'll know that we sent you, expressvpn.com slash retro. And of course, by supporting our sponsors, you're supporting the show as well. And a big thank you to our friends at ExpressVPN. Right next, we're going to get some inside stories on so many classic games and, of course, the early days of Epics, the uh, Koala Pad, Sega Saturn development, Sega CD, and lots more as well. Star Control games, Star Wars, with our special guest, Robert Leyland, is next on the Retro Out podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour, and we're here with Robert Leyland. How are you doing? Oh, great. Thank you. It's good to Excellent. be here. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, great to have you here. We always start with a question, and that's what was your first kind of gaming experience that you remember? Uh, g- gaming as in, like, any gaming? Um, because... Any any form of gaming. Oh, yeah. Any gaming or computer. Memory. It could, you know, yeah. sometimes it's people's earliest memory. <laughs> well, I, I think, I, I mean, when I was a little kid, you know, we would play uh, Snakes and Ladders and um, Chess and... Um, mm you know drafts and stuff but um i think my the more defining gaming experience was joining a gaming club and you know at university and um mm. university of auckland in new zealand we had two gaming clubs um one was called the tiddlywinks and knucklebone society and that was <laughs> formed by a, a guy who figured out that the college the, not the college the student union would 50 percent fund fundraising and he figured out that that meant half price beer so um <laughs> we'd he'd get a get a license we'd have a little beer thing 
and uh, and they would you know knock back a dozen beer or so in an evening and play some silly game. And it was really meant to be a drinking excuse. But a whole bunch of people joined that actually wanted to play games, not drink. And that meant uh, either they had to buy some games or they got even cheaper beer. So they did both. <laughs> and uh, and we played uh, all kinds of um, really early, uh, more advanced games. Like um, I, I think the big one for a while was the G- original Dune game. Mm. And um, and uh, that was also my the first experience with Dungeons and Dragons because that was yeah. in the in the nineteen seventies. Yeah. Mm. And was it long after that that you started seeing video games like arcades popping up and stuff like that? Right. Yeah. We, we like obviously you seeing Pong pop up in mm. a in a in a local pizza joint or something was was starting to to happen. Um, and uh, also the microcomputers were really um, starting to be, become a thing. Um, when I was in uh, high school, I had the for- great fortune to be at a high school that had an advanced math class where one of the teachers knew how to program and taught us uh, computer programming. So my first programming experience was in high school programming Fortran on punch cards. And uh, we used, we had a hand punch for cards, which was this machine that had a mechanical keyboard and little knives that poked down and poked holes in the cards. And it punched out IBM Hollerith cards that would they would we would take down to the local bank and they would run it through their IBM probably a 360 um, the Fortran system um, and uh, I, I think the bank did it because they got a tax write off um, we we got to the the joy of carrying trays of punched card you know cardboard boxes of punched cards down to the local bank <laughs> and running running computer simulations and um, that got me started and that was probably one of the few classes I got. Um, like A's and a hundred percent in the class. And it was like, okay, this is pretty clearly where I need to be. <laughs> when it kind of moved on from the kit computers and it yeah. went into, into the microsystems, what, what were the kind of popular ones where you were? Uh, Commodore PET and Apple II. Um, those were probably the biggest. Um, there were some Radio Shack machines, but they were not nearly as popular in New Zealand. Um, the uh, Apple II was pretty well supported and funnily enough the commodore was as well and uh that was really good i actually quite liked programming the commodore pet that was a that was actually a pretty good little machine and uh, that actually leads me into my gaming because into making computer games because one of my friends had a commodore pet and he was really mad that he couldn't do little animations and stuff um that he saw people doing on the apple and uh, mm. he, he asked me about it and i wrote him um I wrote him some assembly language routines that he could call from BASIC that would copy bits of the screen on and off, essentially like a really primitive blitter, like it just copied rectangles around and could be used for animation. And to show him how it worked, I wrote a little um, sword fighting game where I had two little animated characters that would poke each other with swords. And uh, um, he never he, he never really got onto it, but I thought it was kind of fun to do that. And that actually turned into a video game called Dragon's Eye, which was published by Automated Simulations, um, later Epics, and basically got me to move from New Zealand to the United States. So you, you just rolled our next like four questions into one, which is amazing. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. So in terms of programming, how did you learn to do that? Did you, did you like buy the magazines, you know, or did you just literally pick it up and just do it yourself and just kind of trial and error? 
all of the above. Yes. Yeah. Uh, mag- magazines, um, uh, particularly the early magazines were really fun. The creative computing, the, um, there are a couple of Atari specific ones. Um, but a lot of it was from, you know, manufacturers data sheets. So I had, you know, you'd get the, this giant fat book of 6,800 programming and then 68,000 and 6502 and all mm. the chips, you, you know, there were the data sheets, um, and a lot of stuff from the magazines, a lot of stuff basically because by then I was in college or going through college, and we had um, uh, access to um, more information, you know, college libraries and stuff that let us uh, let us get more information. So then jumping ahead a little bit, so you, you mentioned that, you, you know, it was Dragon's Eye that got picked up by Epics, was it? Yes. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so what was the, how did that happen? How did it get picked up? How, what's the story there with you then? Oh getting the job for them and stuff. And they were originally uh, called automated simulations, weren't they? Right, at right. At, at the time, they were automated simulations. Mm. And there were maybe four companies in the US that were making uh, computer games that mm. were actually actually publishing, as opposed to like the wizardry guy who was making his own game and publishing it himself. There were only, only three or four companies. And when I got the game to a point where I felt fairly good about it, it was actually originally called The Magician's Hat uh, because that was one of the little graphic icons that you could – it was a treasure you could find in the game. I sent it to four or five companies, four companies, and um, automated were the ones that responded the most positively. Um, a couple of them didn't respond at all. My memory is a bit fading here, but but automated responded positively and said they'd like to pick it up. I talked with them on the phone and they sent a contract, but they said we'll need an Apple II version. So my company in New Zealand at that time was making um, business software on Apple IIs. So I basically snaffed an Apple II and wrote um, and converted it from the pet to the Apple in, I don't know, a few weeks, a week or two. And then we sent that to them and they were good. And they said, well, we really want it for the Atari. And, uh, and I said, well, okay. And I, I went, came over to the US, visited them. They uh, came back with an Atari and we set it up in New Zealand and I programmed the Atari version. And I really loved the Atari. That was such a nice little computer to work on. Of all the little home computers, it had far and away the best programming environment. Um, and uh, the chipset was designed by Jay Miner, um, who later went yeah. on to build the Amiga and the um, Atari Lynx. And uh, it, it was a really solid little machine. It had a, a, a the people who had developed the core um, uh, core operating system built into it. Had a, it had a real BIOS with a communication protocol. And uh, anyway, I'm getting a bit technical, but basically, it was a nice, <laughs> a nice so machine. Good. It was a nice machine inside to program. Uh, what, on. Was it the 400 or the 800? Well, that, they were the same machine, 400, 800, 1200. They just had different amounts of memory. Um, I oh, mostly, okay. I mostly like programming, I was using the 800. That was the, the pretty much the target machine. Um, I, w- I was wondering, like, because in Britain at the time, it was very much like a cottage industry. And like you said, yeah. um, they had Scott Adams kind of releasing his games, um, you know, in baggies in a shop, kind yeah. of uh, <laughs> getting it out that way. So, we, so we how was... We, yeah, we, how was automated simulation set up, and was it what was it like? Well, they were they were a bit more professional than that. But I will say that on the baggies thing, that's actually how we made games in New Zealand. We um, borrowed a cassette duplicator, um, copied a couple of hundred cassettes, and packaged them up in little bags that were little almost Ziploc bags that were stapled together with the 
um, Xeroxed um, instructions and stuff. So Automator was a bit more polished than that. They actually, they put them in cardboard boxes. They had a disk duplication service. So they made their, they made floppy disks with actual labels and they um, actually hired professional artists and writers to write the manuals and do cover art and stuff. And uh, uh, to this day, I really, I, I still really like the Dragon's Eye cover art that was done by um, George Barr. I think he might have passed on now. He was getting a bit old last time I, I heard. And they made posters, and I still have a few of the posters from uh, from Dragon's Eye. And it, you know, it, they really went for the art. This was this was automated simulations, and they had a background. They had a, a, a Dungeons and Dragons group that played within the company and all, all this kind of stuff. And it was right about this time that they were starting to transition to the name Epix. And actually, um, Diane Asher, who was their director of marketing, was sort of the pusher, push for that. And a year later, a year and a half later, she, um, we got married. So, and I've been married to Diane since then. So, yeah. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so Dragon's Eye released like many games back then on the multi-system. How, how, was, it, how was it like porting that? Um, at the time, porting was um, a a new concept. You know, um, uh, there weren't uh, some. Um, typically, when they were doing the games, automated actually had a, a bit of a system because they had a um, not really. I wouldn't call it a library, but they had a group of people who did the games for each of the systems. And I was one mm. of the few people that actually did the same game on multiple systems. Typically, what they had done was they they one of their guys had built a system using, I think it was the Apple II that drew the walls and did their their games. And then somebody else, instead of porting it, they kind of re-implemented it on each of the other platforms. Uh, you know, they used the same core code, but the underlying, some of the under, you know, underlying it, but some of the stuff was like, was essentially re-implemented. So it was a bit more haphazard. And a lot of times, a lot of the companies only made games for, for one platform, or if they published games on multiple platforms, their titles were only on one platform because a code or a programmer at a and because at that time, uh, the concept of a game designer, as distinct from the programmer, was fairly uh, fairly limited. And one mm. of the things that was really nice about Epic, about Automated in those early days was they had actual designers, uh, John Freeman. Paul Ritchie, they and and um, even the president of the company were actually designers more than they were programmers. So I, I you know, I made lifelong friends there with um, Paul Ritchie and um, Eric uh, Wilmunder, um, and uh, who, who went on to LucasArts, um, and uh, Paul who went on to do Star Control and was my boss for fifteen years on Skylanders later on. It's it's really important having people like that because. Um, yeah. You know, some of the titles would have been easier to do, like text adventures and stuff, and you know, have them on different systems. But when you you're getting into an area with graphics and uh, stuff like that, it needs to like have that game design eye. Yeah, yeah, and and it was also really important to meet game meet people who could design a game rather than program it because. Um, you know, in in your youth, you think you can do everything, but in fact, that specialization, that early specialization, was really important. And um, we made um, uh, Paul and John and I and John's wife Anne made a couple of games for Electronic Arts, 
and those were Miron the Zindernerf and Archon. And we had two designers, John and Paul, working together, and two programmers, myself and Anne. And we would help each other because we were working on, we were both working on Atari systems. So we were trading code backwards and forwards. But um, the design aspect was awesome because John and Paul were both pretty methodical and could produce stuff that made it feasible for us to program, to code into the, into the games. It, that was a fun relationship. That was a good, good work environment, that one. It sounded like it was turning into a, a proper kind of company and, you know, people taking it seriously and uh, having designers there. How, how did Epics, how did it change into Epics and kind of expand and grow? Um, so let me, let me back up. So I came to the U.S., I met Diane. I took an Atari back to New Zealand. We finished. I finished programming Dragon's Eye, and then I came back to um, Automated Simulations to go to work there. They actually, you know, they offered me a job and hired me. But in the process of that, in that year, um, a lot changed at Epix, and they had decided that they were going to shift from floppy disks and computers, computer games, um, or, you know, the computer side, PC in particular, to more consoles. So they wanted to, they were starting to make cartridge games. And uh, what, so I was there for about, um, for somewhere between four and six months. I, I forget the actual time frame, but we made multiple cartridge games for the Atari and we made, we made versions of them for the Apple II and the um, Tandy as well. And it, it was a weird transition. Some of the people who who were there that I I enjoyed working with had left, and there were other people there that um, they, were, they were nice. I mean, I wasn't I'm not saying they're bad, but it was a different environment. So I didn't actually stay there very long, and and moved on to doing the uh, doing doing the work with John and Paul on um, for Electronic Arts. Because it seemed to me that doing cartridge games at that time was the wrong direction. And I think, I mean, I think they did okay with some of them. I mean, they did produce the um, the Olympics games or something, their sports games, um, mm. which is interesting because that was, those were, I think, some of the first games that were really heavily sports oriented. Um, EA eventually did really, really well with um, basketball and then later football and, and stuff much later. C64 was a was a big deal. Um, uh, I was doing quite a bit of programming on the C64, and they were actually trying to figure out a way to do a cartridge for the C64. I don't think that ever happened. You know, the C64 had a hardware port on the side, but I don't think they actually succeeded in making cartridges for it. Yeah. I think there was a gaming system that was a, a short-lived kind of one. I think. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, later on they—that's uh, right. Later on, Commodore had systems that were that had cartridge slots. So the next game that you did was it was it Star Control? Yes, I think so. So I, I, there was a little interlude there. I'll, I'll just mm. just let you know. Having worked on video games for a while, uh, Diane and her a business partner Steve had formed a company called Island Graphics. And okay. they were doing computer software, and so mm. and, and they needed someone who could program an Atari. So they kind of hired me away from uh, Epics, um, keeping it in the family. Um, and I, so, and Steve and I programmed a product called the Micro Illustrator, which we OEM'd to device manufacturers, people making uh, computer tablets and 
um, uh, particularly typically graphics tablets. The big one was the Koala Pad. Um, oh yeah, we know that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was hugely popular, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, Steve did the Apple II version. I did the Atari version, and we um, had a, a contractor do the Commodore sixty four version later on. And so we did um, the uh, the Koala Pad, the Atari Touch Tablet. The I forget. I, I, in the end, there was something like twenty seven different versions of that product on different machines as far apart as the uh, Japanese MSX system. Pretty much anything that could have a color display on a microcomputer mm. on it, we made a version for. <laughs> so, And that got me into computer graphics for a while, so I started mm. doing, uh, doing more computer graphics stuff, and that lasted until the early 1990s. And that's when I decided, okay, I'm done with computer graphics. It's time to go back to games because I was having more fun. And uh, I, that's when I worked with Paul and Fred on Star Control which led to Tojo Manuel, yeah. So how did how did you get back into it then? Because if we were looking at um, the games you worked on, and like you say, there were, we saw there was a gap there. Um, so right. I'm glad you filled right. in the gap there. So how did you, how did Star Control come about? And, um, you know, it was a big hit. So what do you think kind of made it special as well? Oh, okay. Well, um, some, some interesting things about Star Control. Um, mm. The first one is the lead engineer on Star Control, the lead programmer was Fred Ford. Mm. And... Fred had been one of the people that I'd hired at Island Graphics. So for a while, while I technically wasn't his Fred's direct boss, um, he was uh, a, a programmer when I was a manager of, of a, a managing a division. It was a different division, but I'd interviewed him when he, when he came to Island mm. Graphics. Uh, Fred was introduced to Paul um, because Paul did uh, – we, we, we used to do art contests and uh, – we would get people like uh, like Errol Otis and Paul and Matt Genzer to come in and do art for for us as part of a contest. You know, you you might win a hundred bucks, and we'd get these pictures um, mm. that we'd use in displays and things. Anyway, um, Paul did a, a really a, an interesting little picture that was so quick. I, you know, it was a snapshot of him with mirrored mirrored glasses, and he worked the mirrored glass angle to put himself in his own mirrored glasses. And it was a really clever, effective technique. Anyway, uh, so Paul and Fred met through through that, through Matt and through me. And Fred had done video games on like little Japanese console systems, and mm. he, they started the uh, Toys for Bob. And we're putting together putting together Star Control. And when it was time for me to leave Island Graphics, it kind of made sense to come and do some work with them. And so I worked on Star Control 1, and in particular on the Sega Genesis version of Star Control 1, which was really fun because that was done through Accolade. And Accolade was not a um, licensed Genesis developer. Was it the... So- the big, con- they did the big um, cartridge version of it. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Tw- yeah, yeah. Tw- yeah. Everybody else was doing eight meg cartridges, and and Activision, uh, not Activision, um, uh, Crystal Dynamics. Accolade, Accolade, mm. thank you, did, did a 12 megabyte cartridge, mm. which was like, oh, awesome. But because we didn't really have access to the, um, the real specs of the Genesis, um, mm. all we had, we had what, what was essentially reverse engineered documentation. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, so, so many of our guests have to say that about the Genesis yeah, and the Mega Drive. It's just, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a Mega Drive. And, and uh, so there was a lot of stuff that we didn't actually know about. Um, mm. We didn't really understand the the DMA system, so it was actually kind mm. of slow to put graphics up on the screen without the without the DMA system, and uh, 
so there are points where when you're playing uh, star control that it can get a bit chunky and slow, particularly when the two ships get close to the planet and start shooting at each, shooting a lot of stuff at each other, which unfortunately is a part, a big part of the game. Um, it can slow down a little bit, but um, we implemented uh, voice uh, speech synthesis on the Genesis um, using the little internal Z80 sound processor. Uh, we had scaling graphics um, on the for the for the ship to ship combat, which is basically uh, the controls are like asteroids. If you guys have played Star Control, mm, yeah, yeah, Star Control One, yeah, yeah, and it was a it was a really a fun development project. Um, you know, Fred's really a genius programmer, um, so uh, I, I would say I, I did learn a lot from him. Uh, he probably got annoyed at my questions, but it was it was okay. <laughs> and uh, having learned the Genesis, that became uh, sort of our system of choice for a while. Uh, so we d- I did I think two or three more titles on the Genesis after that. Uh, one of which, of course, was Toe Manuel. Well, um, Star Control Two as well was kind of ported to the 3DO and uh, it had like extra multimedia features. What, yeah. what did you think of the 3DO when it came out? And like, did you think it's a bit of a underrated system? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was a great system. Um, the, you know, the, the original Star Control 2, the work was done on the PC, which I was involved a little bit on. Um, mostly uh, on Star Control 2, I was already working on other projects. Oh, you know what? One thing I wanted to say about Star Control, or one of the reasons I think it was so interesting and successful was it was the first almost crowdfunded game. Um, mm. or, or crowdsourced game. When Island did these those little contests for art, I think that sparked something in Paul. And we got all the music, he got all the music for Star Control done by making a, uh, they implemented a, a, a mod format player and announced a contest that you could, you know, win, win money and, and from, uh, by submitting tunes to Star Control. And we got, hundreds of tunes hundreds of really some of them were just um unbelievably good some you probably were better off not hearing um (laughs) but uh, but a lot of them were really good and particularly some guys in finland who were just absolutely expert at putting putting together these music tracks using this this mod format and uh so particularly that, that was used for star control one for the um themes for the different um, uh, species that fought each other. And it was a real challenge getting that to work on the Genesis, with particularly with the voice playback at the same time because mm. so, we had to do multiple channels um and that it was a good it was a it was a good challenge um but the reason i think it was so successful too was that they came through with this with the system and when paul and fred were doing star control 2 they did something similar they just got a bunch of their friends to help them write dialogue trees for the different alien species and you know um, paul had a big plan about how to do it and he, we would have meetings and groups of us would get together and do dialogue trees for all the different opponents and different races that you ran into in Star Control 2. Super fun. Really, really a fun collaborative effort. So uh, you mentioned earlier on um, a really iconic game there, which we've got a couple of questions about. Toe Jam and Earl ended yes. up being such a cult game. What was your involvement there? How, how, t- tell us about that. Okay, well, so Toji Manuel is primarily uh, Greg Johnson and Mark Vorsanger, and mm. they were in the office next door to us when I was mm. working with um, Paul and Fred, and they needed 
uh, some coding help because the coding tasks on the game were a bit were pretty large. And having just implemented Star Control One and having a pretty good familiarity with the sound system, I did the sound system for mm. Tojem and Earl and uh, and and contributed some gameplay stuff and a bit of graphic stuff. And we did I did a lot of optimizing and work on it. But honestly. The majority of that work, I'm, I'm uh, you know, not going to shine to my own horn here. Was was Mark, uh, and the mm. design was Greg. Um, I, you know, I, I uh, I'm responsible for to- for Earl's pants falling down in the elevator, um, <laughs> and and one or two other minor minor things. But really, that's that's Mark and Greg. And I was really, it was it was it was a good project. It was a fun project. Uh, it was also nice at that point to be an actual sega project because now i could actually look at the sega manuals <laughs> and, and uh, understand how the genesis was supposed to be used <laughs> and uh, did, did that make it a lot easier because you know like you say it was a really fun innovative game and there was a lot of audio on that game you know was it was it hard to fit it all in or having the manuals now finally did that make it a hell of a lot easier for you uh, well, some parts of it, it did it made it easier. Yeah, um, I, fitting it in was um, there was a lot of compression involved. I remember that you know doing uh, doing um, compression systems, but the um, audio in the Genesis was primarily uh, an FM synthesizer. So you played a note and you set up waveforms and instruments, and it's these days it would be regarded as a pretty primitive system. But we also needed to include. Uh, again, digitized audio, and mm. that digitized audio can take up a lot of space, particularly on those early systems, because this was like um, pre PK zip. Like you can't, you couldn't do zip zip style compression <laughs> on those things. It was uh, much simpler systems. Well, um, you also worked on a uh, Racing Aces, which is quite interesting because the uh, Mega CD came out at that time, and uh, you must have had a bit of boost of technology and also was there kind of like a bit of a a, a rivalry between the uh, 32x developers and uh, the, yeah. the mega cd yeah mega cd so um yeah that was interesting because at that time um i, I partnered up with uh, uh greg hammond um remember i mentioned eric hammond who'd done one-on-one um mm. so greg greg i partnered with greg he was a producer at LucasArts at that time and he had an idea to make a game, uh, make some games, and we we went and talked to Sega. And having done the Genesis stuff, we were interested in continuing to do work with Sega. And we um, presented a game design for an airplane racing game, and we implemented it. I implemented it on the um, Genesis first, but the frame rate was pretty low. We're talking, you know four or five frames a second like it was pretty damn slow because uh, quite honestly the the genesis for all its blast processing really wasn't designed for doing 3d and they they suggested the 32x which i looked at but they said no no no, this this title's got a longer time frame before it's finished so let's go straight to the mega cd and and basically that had a a a sped up 68,000 cpu and at, at this point, we were doing almost all of our programming in C, which which is which is really beneficial because it meant that converting code from the from the Genesis, the base Genesis, to Mega CD wasn't that bad. You know, I mean, the game code was straightforward, and we did the graphics stuff inside the Genesis dual processing. Um, but mostly, what it boiled down to was you dumped some data into the into the 
Genesis and the Genesis threw it up on the screen and the, the Genesis wasn't actually doing very much. So yes, technically it was dual processing, but one of them was really just an output device, not a uh, not actually like doing any any brain work, and and it was fun. I mean, it was it, we we had some issues with that, and I I learned a very valuable lesson, which is don't rely on the QA testers feedback for game difficulty, because the QA testers get really really good at playing games at playing the games, and they kept telling us it was too easy, so we kept making it more and more difficult. And then uh, the game was just impossibly hard for normal people to play. <laughs> just it was just one of those things where where we'd ramped up the difficulty because of the, what the testers had said to us, and yet it turned out to be overkill. But uh, yeah, it was a fun title, and and it led directly to working on the Saturn, which um, was a different experience. Yeah, that's actually our next question. Um, so. It, it, that segued really nicely so like, like you say you programmed quite a few games uh for the sega saturn what what was that experience like you know was it as difficult as people say it was and did you think this is the future or you know did you think maybe the future was with the playstation so uh, we got a um as we were finishing up racing aces mm. they wanted us to, to to work on the on the the uh, saturn and they shipped up to us a prototype Saturn, which was a 19-inch rack with four printed circuits on it, four giant PC printed circuit boards. Wow. 19 inches is half a meter. So you're looking mm. at four half-meter square boards with mm. giant fans that made this awful racket and into the office, and we connected it up and, and got some graphics going. And uh, one thing was really clear early on, was that the system was was wonderfully fast. Mm-hmm. Um, it was horribly documented. Uh, mm. Like the documentation for it was really horrible. And its 3D capabilities were very, very limited. Literally in the room next to us, we had the Toys for Bob guys with a PlayStation 1, and it was doing graphics that the Saturn couldn't hope to match. So Mm. we tried to, um, you know, there was there were some things the Saturn was really fabulous at. Let me give it give you its really positive qualities first. The first really positive quality was it had probably the most powerful CPU of any system up to that point. Mm. It had two Hitachi sixteen thirty two bit RISC processors that were blazingly fast, Mm. and and it could make up for a lot. It had a, a graphics overlay system that was capable of doing almost anything you saw in the arcades. The, the yeah. in the arcades, you could you could create a, a any any of the arcade games you could create on the Saturn. Mm. And as I recall, it had a pretty decent sound system too. Yeah. What it didn't have was it didn't have something that could actually draw polygons. It had a it had a very crude system for drawing polygons into a into a graphics buffer, but it was a it was a hopelessly archaic concept for the way they were doing it. It wasn't just us, but a number of groups talked to Sega about it from inside the US and just said, "Hey guys, th- this isn't going to work." And I think by the time it got into the hands of the software developers, it was too late. They'd already committed to the system. Mm. So we we did what we could with it, and um, Greg and I made uh, Gen War, which was a yeah. sci-fi shooter game that again was a lot of fun to make, and we were able to create some you know good three D graphics. But 
by comparison, I think the same product, uh, you know, I, I'm looking back in hindsight, would have been a lot better on a, on a machine like the PlayStation. It was just, I mean, the PlayStation used a more modern architecture for drawing polygons mm. than the Saturn did. Yeah. I was going to just say, you know, you completely hit the nail on the head of, I mean, my understanding of the Saturn is it was perfect for arcade ports of 2D games all these like you know 2d fighters like the x-men games and stuff like that it ran beautifully smoothly amazing games but like you say it just didn't it just couldn't compete with the playstation when it came to those you know 3d polygons and stuff yep there was no um there was no concept of blending you could Mm. i mean it could drop it could draw polygons and it could draw them fairly quickly using a really weird line Mm. like line drawing algorithm but it Mm. had no uh in technical terms, it had no read, modify, write, and no 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 blending capability. So you couldn't anti-alias. You couldn't do smoke, for example. Just the simple I, thing like drawing I, I was, smoke. You know what? Yeah. I, I'm I'm not yeah. a technical guy, but I was about to say is that one of the things I always see is they compare like water graphics and smoke graphics and fog graphics. You know, on yep. games that came out on both the PlayStation on and on the Saturn and. They always say, oh, in the PlayStation, it looks like it is actually fog, whereas on the Saturn, it just looks like lots of dots over the screen to make it yeah. look like smoke. That, that's, that's pretty fair. Yeah, that is mm. pretty fair because it didn't have any, any blending, any capability of blending two pixels together. You could draw over the top of something, but you couldn't, you couldn't put a transparent thing down. Is what mm. it is. Yeah. Very sad. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Toys, toys for Bob as well. They were, they were working on some interesting titles, ones that came out for the Saturn as well. Did you end up seeing any? Because uh, I remember Pandemonium. Yeah, I did the, uh, I did was the Saturn. Quite a big hit. I did the Saturn port of Pandemonium. So, oh, brilliant. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I didn't do very much on on the original version of Pandemonium. I mean, we play tested it and, and enjoyed the hell out of it. Mm. But um, what, they needed to do a Saturn version, and I did the Saturn port. I was going to say, I, I do have it myself. So was it difficult to get it working on or...? No, it wasn't. It wasn't difficult to get it to work. And, and in fact, the as I said, the the processing speed of the Saturn eclipsed the PlayStation by a, probably an order of magnitude. But getting it to look good was extremely difficult. I, you know, things like the wind and the tornado effects and some of the clouds and um, puffy explosions and stuff were just way harder to do on the Saturn. <laughs> it was it was a great concept for a game because it was kind of 2.5D as well. Well, it had that kind of 3D-ness and then, you know, it was still a side-scroller. Uh, yeah. R- really, really exciting, fun game. I remember that. Uh, really stood out when in those early days. Yeah, it, it was a fun title to work on. Um, uh, we also did The Horde, which was a, essentially a 3X game, you know, where you're doing... Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like an isometric view, isn't it? Yeah, isometric view game, yeah. Um, mm. Which was which I think we did for the... We did for the... They did for the PlayStation, and they also did it for the 3DO, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. So um, you worked on... Was it was it Congo next that you worked on? Congo, the movie oh, yeah. the game? Yeah, yeah know, we did... Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> there we go oh god <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so so in terms of congo you know the yeah. film was expected to be huge you know it was right. the next michael crichton film following jurassic park success yeah um, yep. unfortunately it wasn't what, yep. what was the vibe like working on that game was there a lot of pressure from the studios oh yeah yeah uh, in fact there were two two or three aspects of working on it that were that of working on Congo that made it extremely challenging. One was the source material itself. You know, before the movie was released, we had very limited access to to the source material. 
we did have, you know, obviously reading the book, but the book and the movie are some are quite a bit different. Mm. Uh, the book is book is closer to the the sort of, if you like, the original, which was the an old story called of H. Ryder Haggard, um, yeah. which was written around the turn of the century. I forget the title now. Mm. Um, something about gold. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But the movie kind of followed that story, but really kind of didn't. And so we had some source material. But the hard part about Congo was it, technically it was challenging because we were trying to do a jungle on a system that couldn't draw enough polygons to really simulate the foliage properly. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, as the movie got closer and then when it got released, it was such a dud that your morale goes away. <laughs> you know, your morale sinks. And you also have this problem where everything you did had to go through a vetting process. And some of the vetting process was at Sega. And then there was a second vetting process at, I think, uh, Paramount. And that process was very negative. Um, mm. st- you, you had to go through so much, uh, so much circular Submit, resubmit, submit, resubmit, submit, reject, resubmit, submit, yeah. reject. Yeah, yeah. That that modify cycle, and it was several days long. It it wasn't like you got the res- the the answer back the next, you know, like that afternoon. It would be three or four days, and then you'd have to re revi- revise that art or that design thing, and that those delays just stretched out the project um, mm. uh, and, and made it terribly late and the movie was such that the motivation wasn't high it was it was it was a difficult project but yeah. you know yeah you you learn a lot <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. well well yeah. speaking of learning a lot um it once again segues very nicely you then I'm, I'm not sure if it was the next game you worked on but it says it was on Moby games very high profile game the phantom menace for the playstation one okay yes yes um we were so excited to work on a star wars Mm. project yeah i mean i imagine Um, yeah it's coming back star wars is back after 20 years you know 20 years oh yeah yeah Yeah. and it was really exciting we got um um, i was working at that time for um big eight productions Mm. um we'd uh rolled off that after jumping jack which was the the company that had We'd done Congo and then uh, Gidwar and then Congo mm. to, together with had had folded and uh, Big Ape um, had uh, so Big Ape was started by a couple of um, ex LucasArts people mm-hmm. and we're in Marin County in Northern California and Lucasfilm is in Marin County Northern California and they're about maybe eight eight miles from our our office from the space we were working from. Mm. And so it was pretty easy to go there and, and work with them. So we, we would go down there and visit them and see some of the source material as it was going, as as um, Ian McCaig and the other artists there were generating this really fantastic visionary material. It was really neat. And we had a writer inside uh, LucasArts who was um, somewhat, help, you know, was helping us somewhat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we were developing an, an engine that could produce levels and, and, all, and all that kind of stuff. And it was pretty pretty neat. And we had a, a, a synopsis of the story. We had an outline, and it seemed pretty good. Yeah. And then, and then one day we got the script. Oh, wow. Um, and then another day we went there and watched a what's called the maquette version, which mm. is basically the actors reading the script in front of cardboard 
cartoon background. So the, yeah. the, the actors are green screened and the background is essentially uh, like panels from a comic book. Okay. And uh, yeah. And uh, the script was one thing. Mm. Seeing the actors doing the lines, it was like, oh, this is not wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, kind of, kind of. We, we went, we went to this um, uh, the theater at the Lucasfilm Ranch yeah. at George's um, yeah, yeah. Ranch, and watched it in, in the theater there. And uh, nobody said anything when we got out until we got back to the office. And I was mm. like, that wasn't very good, was it? You know, like <laughs> no, nobody wanted to be the one to say it, but it was, yeah. but everybody was like, oh, this is this. There was a lot of stuff in there, you know. I, I really hope that it that they can edit that that, it, that the editing removes all that stuff before the the things and kind of um you know we we were talking amongst ourselves and realized that well it does have to go through this editing process and it'll probably a lot of that stuff that we really didn't like will probably get clipped out Mm -hmm. nope it was all there it was all in the movie it was all there yep (laughs) yep yep. i I was wondering like lucas arts games had a big history of kind of gaming and stuff for what why were they then coming to a kind of external company oh you know that's um that's politics really inside lucas arts um they alternate from doing a lot of external developers to doing a lot of internal developers mm. and and it varies a lot based on who's in charge at the time like as they change company presidents they'll set off in a new direction and they'll wax and wane on internal versus external development it was a, it was a really interesting company um uh, i i spent quite a bit of time there particularly working on the playstation version of phantom menace um, mm. which was which i pair programs with nick he was a, he was a really nice guy really competent and uh we we worked together um pretty well mm. and uh his partner we were all three of us in one office um was doing the the underlying engine which was a, honestly a really challenging project and he was pretty stressed and it was one of the things because I'd, I'd done the same thing when we were working on the original Phantom Menace and and, um, and also Simpsons Wrestling, getting the underlying engine to work. It's either all going to work or none of it's going to work because it's all so, so closely tied together. It's got to be all the jigsaw pieces have to fit together. Mm. And when they do, they all fit together at once. Yeah. But as you're developing it, you've got um, 500 pieces scattered around and individually some pieces of them look pretty good but they aren't together and so there's this pressure on you to put it all together but it has to be right and once it is right it's fantastic you know so i I had the same experience and i had some sympathy with them but it was pretty stressful for them at the time yeah and uh yeah so i mean i i adored the phantom menace but i was i think i was the perfect i was 10 when it came out and I had yeah. and I had the game as well, um, but you know something you touched on earlier on with you know some of the other games we spoke about was I found the game really difficult, and I don't know if it was just because I was you know nine ten years old. Um, yeah. But do you think that was down to play testing again, or you know do you think it was just uh, possibly? Um, mm. It wasn't meant to be an easy game. I mean, mm. at that time also there was an expectation that. Uh, computer games were supposed to be difficult, that they were supposed yeah. to be challenging. Yeah. Um, um, if you remember, the original version of Toe Jam and Earl is pretty mm-hmm. damn challenging as well. And later on, when we, as, as we like redid the game, you know, when we did um, Toe Jam and Earl 3, we'd learned a lot about what allows people to play games. Um, yeah. and, in fact, one of my uh, Genesis projects was um, the Game Genie. 
Um, mm. Do you guys remember there was? I think there was one called oh, the yeah. Game Shark and the Game Genie. Yeah, that I, were, I've got a Game yeah. Genie right next to me. The, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. The Sega the one. Genesis <laughs> one. Yeah. So, yeah. so I did that. I did that one. I oh, did wow. the coding on that one. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That, that, that was me. And if you look in the little book, there are cheat codes for I don't know twenty or thirty games. Mm. And I think I, I think I did cheat codes for like three or four of those games, including uh, Toe Jam and Earl and mm. Star Control, because we'd just done both of those titles. So we were able to generate codes, and those uh, honestly have some really good codes in them. Um, Star Control, I think there's a code in there that lets you have three planets, yeah. which is like not an obvious thing to do given the given the code but because we had access access to the source code we're able to say hey fred what can we do yeah <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah and we were able to put some put some neat neat things in it and one of the things the game genie uh, taught me was that once you've put a game into people's hands mm. it really doesn't matter how they play it like if if mm. they want to cheat their way through a game go for it if they're enjoying themselves if if it's i mean you're you're selling what what we're doing when we make video games is we're creating something that is there to entertain and, people and that's really interesting that you say that because my yeah. my memories of you know the phantom menace which is like 23 years ago now yeah. w- w- was literally that this game is really hard and you're making me fight these droid tanks with my lightsaber hey yeah. i can just use the rocket launcher and blow everything up uh, yeah. so it's interesting that you said that that it's it's actually about the person who plays it and how do they want to play the game yeah. uh, so mm-hmm. you know that's really interesting um and and i like how the kind of you know that the game genie was like it was like the uh peaking and poking of kind of earlier days but being able to do that on a on a console which is pretty <laughs> awesome it's kind of back to roots you know yeah and a, a lot of um a lot of the game genie co- uh, games the games that were supported by the game genie typically had one code which you had to enter to essentially unlock it right if, I, I don't know if you look at that and that was because the um the developers had realized that the that things like game genie and game shark were around so they put some code in to do like a checksum of their rom to make sure Mm. it was valid that it hadn't been tampered with and that first code you were putting in was the code that disabled the the checking code (laughs) and uh, uh, i gave a talk at gdc once and one of the developers asked me how he could block the game the game genie from working and i said my first thing was, well, why would you want to? This is something that we're doing for the players, for your customers, and it's free advertising for you. And he said, no, 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 I just, I just want them to play the game my way. And I said, okay, fine. All you have to do is put in, I forgot what the number was, I think five, five different ways of def- uh, that the thing has to defeat and, and it won't work. Sure enough, he did it and his codes, ne- his games never appeared in any of the Game Genie codes. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, you know, you got what you wanted. <laughs> so yeah. um, after Phantom Menace, you mentioned you were the, you were actually the senior programmer of Simpsons Wrestling and me and my friends, we love that game. And, and I know sometimes people like to bash it these days, but I've got a really, really soft spot for it. What was it like working on that game? And was there a lot of pressure? Because obviously it's such an iconic IP and it was, you know, really in the prime of The Simpsons. You know, what was that like? Yeah, it was super fun because, mm. um, you know, Simpsons are, are fun, uh, were, the, were fun characters. Mm. And, and we had some interesting ideas about things to do in the game, like the, mm. the groundskeeper and his rakes causing, getting whacking people in the face and stuff like that. Mostly what I did on Simpsons Wrestling was the engine was yeah. the game engine mm. and 
that had a for that we we had this guy uh glenn um oh my gosh i can't remember his last name uh anyway glenn was in arizona and we were in california and and he produced a tool for the designers mm. and it was kind of an interesting concept uh and and we'd use we used it on phantom menace and then we mm. used it on simpsons wrestling okay and uh one of the things that was really uh, um, interesting about the tool, I, I mean, there was some interesting graphic stuff that was much more mm. germane to the systems at the time, not germane beyond that, was that um, it had a scripting language built into it that was um, not quite point and click, but you, pretty much the only time you had to type anything was when you were inputting a, either text you know, mm. for, for di- dialogue lines or numbers for how how fast something moved or how high it jumped or which way they were looking or something. So so the, the actual typing aspect of it was minimal. It was all point, click, drag and drop, mm. um, build stuff in. And uh, the thing that was very interesting about it was that it, it was like, like a database query system where the game already knows all of the assets that are built into the game. So it knows about this texture, it knows about the such and such, and it refers to them by their, probably I think in that case, at that time it was file names. But since the artist that was developing the things was like literally in the room next door or even um, beside you when you were when our when our guys were scripting the, the game does game stuff, they would just talk to each other and and pass the resources around. And it meant that it was it was a really critical lesson. It meant that they could prototype level design and prototype um, the game mm. very, very rapidly. So we could experiment, they could experiment a lot, which meant that there were some gameplay aspects of it that were, were pretty fun. Um, Simpsons Wrestling was a bit more limited in terms of gameplay, simply because you were oriented on this ring, whereas Phantom Menace, there was um, this adventure mode and the, um, you know, we had to script uh, AIs for the, the non-player characters and stuff that the, the robots, the droids that you had to buy, fight with your lightsaber and didn't like, um, but also for like um, Princess Amidala when she follows you around in in, uh, in the city. In, in Simpsons Wrestling, it was a bit simpler because all we were really doing was programming the scripts for the non-player uh, character, the non-player the for the characters you weren't playing, the ones you were fighting against. Mm. Um, and when two people were fighting each other, uh, I think that was good. That was, that didn't need as much scripting. That was all to do with the control, the control systems. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was fun. Um, it had a, some, we had a similar problem with Simpsons wrestling that we'd had with uh, Congo because it was the same group. It was Paramount mm. and we had to, I'm, I'm naming, na- naming uh, companies, but that's okay. I'm retired. So it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> um, and where anything we did, any character design, any change, all of our lines of dialogue had to go through paramount the this this group at paramount that would then send it back and we had that same issue where it took forever for stuff to go there and come back and towards the end of the project they i will give them credit they got a lot better at doing it as the as the pressure on them increased to Mm. to do it as well you know to get it done on done on time but yeah and that was actually once again my next question was was did you guys get much creative control on like what characters went into the game you know, the the move lists that they had, you know, because obviously every single character, you know, Homer eating his donuts to restore his health and stuff like that. It was all relevant to the show. 
did you guys right. have to come up with that or was it like notes were sent over to you by the studio put this in the game or did you have to send it to them for approval and stuff like that the, the latter we did mm-hmm. the cr- creative stuff and we cool. would send it to the show to yeah. to to paramount to, for for approval and things like the most of the things with the moves that wasn't uh, wasn't an issue much mm. more of an issue were lines of dialogue and occasionally animations and we we got lines of dialogue from the simpsons writers that yeah. paramount then rejected which was which was <laughs> just blew me away yeah uh, just yeah yeah I mean, these were the show writers yeah. wrote these lines of dialogue. They went to Paramount's thing and then got rejected before we could put them. Yeah, anyway. I, I was going to say, Amazing. like, did you know Matt Groening and stuff write it? But as it turns out, he was, and then it gets declined. So, brilliant, yeah. good old studios. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, some of that I'm sure was a legal issues when they're making video games, particularly then. They were trying to be much more culturally sensitive, like mm. an individual episode of The Simpsons um, or, or or these guys um cartman and those guys they uh, they weren't as culturally sensitive because they yeah. would be satirizing a particular topic in that yeah. show so they could be culturally insensitive but if you take those culturally insensitive remarks out of context mm-hmm. and drop them into a video game where there's no uh there's no connection to the episode they came from then it starts to become problematic mm. you know, the, the, mm. yeah so so we fully got a lot of them and some of them we would self uh, after a while we would realize okay this isn't going to pass them we're not even going to bother sending it down because we we already knew that that would be that this particular statement would not fly you know it yeah. was not a well you were still kind of working and this this is a bit modern for us but you were uh, working with toys for bob and you ended up um, on the skylanders series uh, were you surprised at how those games were going to be uh, you know, taken up by the public and actually became an absolutely massive hit? Um, yes and no. I mean, so after after doing uh, Simpsons Wrestling and, and uh, something else, I forget what it was, I forget what it was, there were a couple of projects in between. I went to work for Toys for Bob doing programming um, on the Xbox because the um, work I'd done on Tojiman Earl 3 was all on the Xbox and they'd been programming on the PC and the PlayStation and funny enough they needed an Xbox programmer so mm. here I come and I become their Xbox programmer and uh, we were working on uh, Disney's Extreme Skate Adventure uh, and uh, that was some. But, but there's some Tony Hawk stuff as well. Absolutely, that, that was yeah. the that was the Tony Hawk engine from uh, Infinity Games uh, that was used as the underlying code. So all the all the skateboarding moves and stuff were already in, in the game. And what we were doing was creating storylines that fit within the worlds of the Disney, the three Disney franchises that were built into the game, and bringing it up on bring it up on different machines and creating more story-oriented levels. One of the things about the Tony Hawk games is they typically have challenges and achievements in a level, but there's mm. almost no story in, in the level, in a Tony Hawk level. Mm. It's just, a, it's just a, um, a collection of things you can do, and it's all about the tricks you can pull off and the grinds, the rails, the spine transfers. And wow, I almost said like I know what I'm talking about with skateboarding. Um, <laughs> uh, I learned a lot. But uh, in Disney's Adventure, we needed to actually have story levels in there. So there were achievements, but we made the achievements be story driven. So 
you know the 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 bully in uh, in one of the levels wants you to bring him a hamburger, and so that was implemented in the Tony Hawk engine as a as a goal, and you had to go to like two different places or three different places to get the ingredients and bring it to him before you could advance to the next before it would unlock another goal. So we used their system to create a goal driven story, and. Mm. Uh, um, it was it was interesting. It was a, a um, that was a, a, a pretty fun fun game, and and we did another skateboarding title a little bit later on, using the same engine, um, uh, which was uh, which came out for the Wii. Downhill Jam. Downhill Jam. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And uh, Downhill Jam was pretty fun because it was one of the first Wii titles. It's certainly one of the Wii titles that there was a chance that we would be included kind of in the box but um we we were just outside that window and ended up being an independent title for it but the Wii was fascinating it was like one of those machines that comes along and um technically it's not wonderful but it's fantastic as far as um uh this whole concept of physical interact physical interaction with the the video game so you're in our case we were using the tilt sensors on the mm. on the control to control your joy to control your skateboard and it was awesome i mean just the the ability to do that kind of stuff was really really neat um and we made these long streaming levels i did the code that streamed uh segments together stitched segments together yeah. in the in the game so that you would have these really really long linear so it feel elements. flawless yeah it would yeah 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 yeah, it that was uh, mm-hmm. that was the kind of start of the uh, Skylanders as well on the Wii, wasn't it? it? It was, yeah. That was right at the beginning, right at the start of Skylanders. We just we'd completed that. I mean, there's a couple of games that were in between there, um, which which are really relevant. Um, we did mm. Disney's Adventure, Disney's Extreme Skate. Then we did a game called Madagascar. Yeah, and then we did Downhill Jam. Then we did Madagascar Two, mm. I think, or or. I forget, but there, there were there was a couple of games. But the the key thing was that um, there was a lot of core competence built up inside Toys for Bob for doing games that worked for kids, worked mm. for particularly young young kids. Yeah, and uh, uh, and and that actually uh, that um, you know 101 Dalmatians, which they did before I while I was doing something else, Toys for Bob had done 101 Dalmatians. Um, and Madagascar and Madagascar 2 were done using an engine that ha- using uh, um, Fred's engine, which was a superset and not not directly derived from, but very but based on the same concepts that we'd used back on Simpsons Wrestling and the Phantom Menace of a scripting language system for for enabling designers. One of the things about Toys for Bob is that, at least in those days, it was a very designer game designer friendly company. I mean, with the CEO, the you know the the head of the studio head is a game designer. It makes sense that the that the company is very design friendly, and mostly as programmers, what we did was provide tools and support for the game designers designing the game. I mean, there was a lot more to it than that, but but that was our sort of our priority, and and I, I think it was the right way to do it. Um, it meant that we could produce. Um, huge, you know, A, double A, triple A grade titles with a very small staff of programmers. Um, I think uh, at 
Madi- the, at the time we did Madagascar, I think there were only five programmers at, mm. at Toys for Bob. We had 30 designers um, and that was enough programmers to do the entire thing because we'd created an engine that the um, designers could use. And it wasn't just the designers, it was also the artists could incorporate this, their, their art and sound and music all conveniently and gave the designers full access to all of it. Very clever system. Um, and and um, these days you can kind of do some of that in products like um, Unity and unreal engine um uh, uh, but this is you know 15 years ago that we were that, that 15 wow. almost 20 years ago that we were doing this and it really worked well um and the first versions of skylanders were done using that system and it was such a contrast to go from that system to the tony hawk engine which is very programmer engineering heavy and and the it has a scripting system but the scripting system is unfriendly shall we say <laughs> it was it was one of the things where when when a, a bug or a, or a, an error occurred the designers pretty much had to get a programmer to come help them find it because it was not it was it was too weird to try and figure stuff out and that so the contrast between those two couldn't have been more extreme anyway. i think i think it's it's really like kind of full circle from um you know, originally where you're talking about automated simulations and you're talking about a few designers there, you know, when there's majority programmers everywhere. And now you're finally in Toys for Bob and it's kind of majority designers. Uh, it, it's really nice story. And, uh, you know, I, I think we'd love to go on for more, but um, <laughs> we've got a limited time period. We usually wrap up with um, what are you up to these days, but you mentioned you, you've retired. So <laughs> living the dream, I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of grandkids, and Perfect. I get to play with my uh, play with my electronics hobbies and um, kick a soccer ball around, and it's 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 not bad. Yeah, it's it's a good thing. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We really enjoyed this. All right, welcome, guys. Cheers. Thanks for having me.